would like to talk some more about uh, softening up third installments and uh, I would like to start from what we might call the judging mind and uh, we all know that um, doing a retreat makes us more experienced in this area. Um, I think the first thing which needs to be stressed is that judging mind has nothing to do with uh, the mind that understands. Judging mind has a compulsive quality. Judging mind uh, is very much tied up with identification, with, with hardness and hardening up. As a matter of fact, the more we judge, the more we indulge in judging mind, the less we understand. Judging mind is a major obstacle to understanding. The more we judge things and ourselves and people, and the more we miss the meaning of things and people and ourselves. I think it's a very, the judging mind is a very strong, very powerful expression of what is classically called attachment, aversion, and ignorance. Of course, this doesn't mean that uh, we cannot judge, you know, um, there are occasions when we have to judge, have to pass judgment on people if we are in certain positions of responsibility. And if we are practitioner, I find that this is a very excellent practice, the practice being the practice of trying to infuse as much as we can acceptance within the negative judgment. Like we, uh, we pass uh, a negative judgment on, say, the performance of someone, and yet at the same time we, uh, we manifest acceptance for the person. Now this simultaneous, you know, judging and accepting can be perceived by the other person. And I personally remember being in, in either uh, situation. 
But it may also happen that, for instance, the other person that we are judging and accepting at the same time does not perceive the acceptance. And so what we get back is resentment or even hatred. And of course, if we are practitioners, this cannot be but a further invitation to work at our acceptance. There is resentment from the other side and hurt inside ourselves because of, of this. And what makes the difference is the light of acceptance, the light of mindful acceptance. That's where the hope lies. That's where the other dimension, so to speak, really begins. So now let, let's try to examine through a few examples the functioning of the judging mind. And let's pick, let's pick up, you know, every, common examples, common situations, everyday life. Like suppose we are in a kind of a very judging attitude and uh, we enter a coffee shop and uh, there are a couple of people in the coffee shop and we decide that the coffee shop is pretentious and bad taste and uh, the lady has a very clumsy dress on and the, uh, you know, the customer in front of us who is taking such a long time to pay for his bill is obviously a totally incompetent person. <laughs> Now, if we had a more innocent mind or a less judging mind, a more understanding mind, we would have noticed the flaws in this situation, period. Judging mind means an extra charge. Sometimes it is noticing the flaws plus an extra charge. At other times it's imagining flaws plus <laughs> an extra charge. We all know this very well. So if you had just noticed the uh, true or less true flaws, we would have uh, stayed free and spacious inside, and we would have let things and people be the way they are. 
But if we are in the grips of our judging mind, we are not free. We don't let things and people be free. We um, want things and people to be up to our expectations. So in this case, basically, we want a different coffee shop, a different uh, dress, and a different customer. What is this? Uh, what does it um, boil down to? We create separation. We create separation several times a day. Because we, we, know, we come across so many occasions in which our judging mind springs up and creates separation. And the more we create separation, the more we end up in isolation, solitude, alienation, estrangement, And I find that this is the most bitter part of dukkha, of, of the suffering that we constantly create. The isolation, the separation. And uh, if we think of it, and if we reflect about it, and it takes, usually it takes practice, to do this kind of reflections. Or if there is, you know, if there is no practice or very little practice, um, yeah, we agree, but we are not, we are not uh, touched. We, we are not really convinced by this kind of reflections. Well, the reflection is very simple. We are facing what we might call the ultimate contradiction the supreme contradiction. We want warmth, we want union, unity, communion, and yet we constantly and actively work in the opposite direction for the opposite result. Separation, isolation, estrangement. Let's again take up this small example. We uh, miss contact. We miss entering in communion or in intimacy, as Larry was saying the other night, with our impatience in the example of the coffee shop. We don't enter into our impatience or into our fastidiousness. Again, as we were saying the other night, we are just simply, you know, the victims because of identification to these reactions. So we don't meet with our impatience with this energy which inhabits us and gets triggered uh, frequently and creates suffering, tension. We miss 
this opportunity. So no contact with this unfortunately important part of ourselves. We keep avoiding it. We keep acting it out, which is a way of avoiding it. We miss the contact, the opportunity for contact with uh, a couple of other human beings, which means acknowledging their presence, being aware of their presence, being aware that uh, that person is more than his slowness, um, whereas identification applied to the other person means, for instance, in this case, equating slowness, incompetence with the whole person. So we miss the contact with this person. We miss the opportunity to send metta to this person. Why should we send metta to this person? Well, actually, the problem is why not? There's another way of, of, of meeting, is another way of making contact, of making union, communion. So we stay in our isolation, in our little concentration camp that we create for ourselves. And as we all know, this happens many, many times, unless we start working at the contemplation of our way, of our ways of isolating ourselves, of separating ourselves, of wanting communion, and yet giving ourselves the opposite. Unless we do the work of bringing gentle observation to this constant uh, factory of suffering, uh, our life is not going to change. As a matter of fact, there is momentum. Separation picks up, gains momentum. And then the hardening up takes roots. So, again, let's try if we can uh, see some other angle, some other uh, dimensions. Because of our deep conditionings and, and addictions, when we enter the coffee shop, we, we develop, we feel a a slight aversion. Because of lack of awareness, aversion becomes identification. We identify with it. If there were, if there was awareness, there would be aversion without identification. So there would be spaciousness around it, more freedom. At the core of identification, there is judging mind throbbing, pulsating, <laughs> literally. 
we know it, but we can know it better. That's, that's what, what the practice can do, much better. And the better we know, the better we understand, the more we start letting go. But if we don't uh, penetrate, if we don't uh, understand in depth, we don't let go. We'll, uh, we'll get back to this uh, in a while. Now, remember the other night we uh, mentioned a classical Buddhist way of expressing all this uh, in the words of uh, the Thai master, Ajahn Mahabua. He talks about Sanya. Sanya is uh, the mind uh, which assumes and presumes, the mind which labels. So the judging mind can be equated with Sanya, judging, assuming, presuming. And then there is another kanda, another aggregate, uh, which is called Sankara. And we can see very clearly how Sankara developed from Sanya. Sankara is making up stories, proliferating the mind the mind which proliferates. Again, a retreat is uh, an unforgettable opportunity <laughs> to see the proliferation of mind. Um, like, for instance, just to use the same example, uh, we might start thinking, uh, I'm sure that all the coffee shops in this town are like this one. Yeah just uh, making up a new story. And then, Sanya, judging mind, jumps in again. And in other words, these new stories become new foci for identifications. So from one identification, then we go through proliferation to a number of new identifications. And on and on. Um, this is from a talk by Ajahn Mahabua. If you ever want to come across the most supreme and valuable treasure, the important thing, you have to watch out for uh, Sankara and Sanya. As a practitioner of meditation, you must get to know the tricks of these two kandhas, for they are the most significant kandhas. And they also say, Samudaya means the cause, the origin of dukkha, of suffering. This Samudaya, this origin of uh, dukkha, arises from Sanya and Sankara. So we're dealing with uh, something, something of fundamental importance. Now, for the sake of simplicity, we can safely equate identification with uh, judging mind uh, and, 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 use, and use these two uh, words um, you know, interchangeably. It is important to realize through the practice that judging mind, sanya sankara, 
is constantly around the corner, ready to create trouble. And somewhere inside us, we know this. And this kind of obscure knowledge creates insecurity. It's another form of dukkha, it's another form of suffering. In other words, we know that there is something completely unreliable within ourselves. You know, everything goes smoothly and you know, we just have to wait for a short while and then judging mind springs up and creates suffering. So judging mind versus understanding mind. Um, identification versus spaciousness. And also, complication versus simplicity. You know, simplicity means to be made of just one thing. So when we find some unification, some unity in practice, in life, some communion, as we were saying, we are happier. Simplicity, unity, makes us happier. Complication is the opposite. Being tied up, being convoluted, being twisted because of all our identifications and proliferation of identifications. Sometimes we say, oh, you know, that person is a, is a bit complicated, as though we weren't. <laughs> as long as we have this judging mind and all the rest of it, we are complicated. We should serenely accept this fact as a first step. Just bringing awareness, bringing gentle awareness to the toxic quality of our judging mind. That's a very important a part of the practice. Again, in formal practice and in everyday practice. Like suppose someone uh, maybe we are, again, in some public place or in a bus. Something is talking about politics, and we're listening. And uh, his or her views are different from our views. And our judging mind can be just powerfully triggered, and we can have uh, maybe some uh, sarcastic reaction. And we might um, come to the conclusion that all this stuff that this guy is talking about is old stuff. But we don't, and we think, you know, why we, 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 in all seriousness, that 
our reaction, our reactivity is, is fresh and crisp. <laughs> you know, this is important, you know, realizing that the real old, stiff, stale stuff is our reaction. But since, uh, you know, it's brilliant, it's sarcastic, <laughs> we think it's fresh, valuable. It's, it's old and hard, repetitive. Oh, we don't see this unless we, we, we work by, by way of, uh, by the way, through the way of, of awareness. And we tend to confirm all the judgments that we have, just in case, I don't know, at least in case we forget or in case we, they get too loosened up. You know, we want our judgments to be just as hard and, and, and uh, you know, vibrant. So we, uh, we start repeating our judgments. Maybe as soon as we, we wake up in the morning, we make a review. <laughs> a review of number of things and people, <laughs> and we repeat our judgments. You know, we have this... So we, we, we do this hardening up process, which is the opposite of softening up, unless we start looking at what we do. Unless we start looking, is that we start uh, developing a communion with this painful activity which goes on uh, so frequently. Or suppose there is a person uh, in, in our a neighbor, and this person we find a little bit funny and a little bit unpleasant, and every time we see that, per that this person, we stamp our seal, you know, <laughs> funny and unpleasant. <laughs> And we don't get tired. <laughs> Actually, we can get excited. <laughs> and again, we do not realize that the only funny and unpleasant thing is our judging, our repetitive judging. Once we begin to see that this is not much different from an illness, then what happens is that we can bring some tenderness to this compulsion that we have. Because, as we all know, the first step is a, a worsening of the situation, because we start judging ourselves because we judge. And so it's what the Buddha called the second dart, But once we see uh, the seriousness of the situation, you know, the illness, the, the suffering, then our observing can really become gentler and gentler, as it is always the case when we have to deal with an illness, uh, a source of suffering, samudaya, sanya and sankara, being the incessant source of suffering and the major one.
See, why, why is it that in the initial stages, in the initial phases of the practice, and initial stages of the practice can be very long, uh, how is it that we find it difficult to go back to the breath? We find it difficult to go back to being aware physical sensation, whatever, breath. One of the reasons why we find it difficult, it is exactly that our mind is all caught in identifications and, and judgments. And we are very much addicted to judging and to identifying. So it's not easy to let that go. And uh, and go back to breath or any other object of awareness. We have a hard time letting go of those mental addictions. And so our, so to speak in a visual, if we want to speak in a visual way, our going back to the breath is like, it's like effortful, it's, it's, it's kind of stiff, clumsy. Yeah. We, we, it's as though we we are afraid of falling down, we are afraid of losing something. If, if we let go of this judgment, of this identification, and then we go back to what? To the breath, awareness, less tangible than our mental addictions. So we, we have a difficult time going back to, to an awareness focus because of our sticky mind judging mind, mind which identifies. And we cannot but asking ourselves, but what do I get from this new activity? What do I get from it? And this, this um, slows us down. Unless we start to understand that what we get is no less than getting rid of what harms us. Nothing less than gradually dropping what is harmful to us. We let go of the causes of suffering. So when we start to see this, then again, in, if, in visual terms, the, the movement of going back to the breath, of going by, back to awareness, becomes more harmonious, more graceful. We, basically, we enjoy going back to the breath. We enjoy going back to awareness. We enjoy, literally, letting go. We are not hesitant anymore. What do I get? We know what we get. We are not, we, or at least we are less and less afraid of losing our precious identifications and, and judgments and um, these things. And we enjoy more and more the less definable thing, quote unquote, that we go back to. Because this new and strange activity has. Uh, some very substantial advantages because he's freeing. And it, this, is, this, this freeing quality 
it is exactly what we are after deep down. As we were saying, we want more communion, more warmth. We want union. And it seems that awareness is capable of giving this to us. And the more we let go of our addictions, of our judging mind, the more we see this. And the more, again, I would, I would like to, to insist and emphasize, we enjoy the breath, we enjoy the awareness, we enjoy the letting go, we enjoy the simplification of our lives. Again, simple is opposite to complicated. Simple is made of, of one thing only. Letting go. Letting go. Gradually letting go of the judging mind means forgiving mind. No less than this. Sometimes we conceive of forgiveness like an isolated act. Forgiveness is a lifetime practice. It doesn't doesn't come uh, through a single effort or down from heaven. It's just the gradual result of our inner work. So forgiveness is a lifetime practice. Forgiveness is the practice. Because the more we practice, the more letting go, the more forgiving we become forgiving for our, the things in us that we don't like, forgiving for things outside of ourselves. And forgiving frees us and frees the other person when it has to do with someone else. So again, this is a crucial part of the softening up process. We can't conceive of a real softening up process without uh, this growing wave of forgiveness and a growing um, relief because of it. A growing gratitude because of this fact. Just absolute gratitude. It's not gratitude to someone or to something. Just a value in itself which dawns on us. Acceptance, letting go, forgiving, gratitude. Now, because of these basic milestones in our practice, 
a test for our practice, is a change in our relationship to other people. In other words, if we practice and practice and practice, and our relationship to other people stays exactly the same, we should revise our practice. <laughs> Something is uh, not quite right. In what sense? Well, we should be less afraid of other people because we feel more in communion, generally speaking, and we have a tool for communion. Like, if fear arises, then we can commune, so to speak, with this fear through our practice. Get in touch, get in contact with this fear through the practice. So we are not afraid of fear anymore, which is a gigantic step. And we have less fear as a starting point in regard to other people. And when fear arises, we much more easily first recognize it and then work on it. Number two, we can, we can put this in a, in a kind of a very blunt way. The duration of our resentment should become shorter, <laughs> much shorter. Um, there is this um, metaphor in India, and uh, it says marks on a stone you know, stay marks on the water, on, oh, sorry, uh, uh, on the sand stay much less, obviously, and then marks on the water uh, are just very ephemeral. This seems to be the, you know, the process, going from stone to sand to water to the immense freedom of, of water. At least, I think we should aim at the ground between stone and sand. <laughs> and also in terms of relationship to other people, a third thing needs to be mentioned, and is that uh, a more, um, a greater readiness just to enjoy people, just seeing people, being aware of people. Just someone we are sitting uh, side to side uh, in a bus. Those hands, that face, those wrinkles. Communion, instead of isolation, instead of walls, constant rumination and judging. Contact, 
So what, what happens, what tends to happen, is a widening of our life's horizon. Like we start feeling that um, we belong to something wider than our personal story, our family story, our cultural story. That doesn't mean that we don't enjoy anymore uh, the, our uh, photograph album, the way we wear, and so on and so forth. Actually, we, uh, we have more, more, more tenderness now. We are less judgmental. So it's, uh, here again, the field is more unified, but we are not identified with our, or less identified with our personal story, our family story, our culture story. Uh, I'm sure that many of you remember the first reports that the first astronauts would give, like uh, the first orbit. They would say, like when, when passing over Houston in Texas, they would say, this is home. And then the next orbit was wider, and then Texas was home. And then the next orbit was even wider, and then the United States was home. And then it was even wider, and then there was this breathtaking moment. Earth is home. You know, you just see this, uh, this uh, ball. And uh, so, you know, wider and wider circles. So it's, through the practice, it's, it's the same. You, we realize that uh, you know, the less identified we are with uh, our small homes, you know, our little identity. And the more we feel that we belong to life, we belong even to something we don't really know, but we know it's there, it's bigger. Uh, a Zen teacher, um, very much like Joko Beck. In, her, in, in one of her talks, she says, uh, the practice, something like that, the practice has two uh, faces, but these two faces, these two stages, uh, shouldn't be seen in a sequential uh, order. You'll understand why. The, the, the first stage is the stage of becoming adults. And she says, uh, like, if you still get angry for something, you are not an adult. And therefore, in this, in this hall, there aren't adults. There is a <laughs> and the second stage, which is not after this, but they, they go together, is when, when you, to the extent that you become more adult, you, 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 you start witnessing a shift for, from, from an ego-centered uh, attitude to uh, an interest, uh, on, on what she calls the wholeness of life. Again, a wider horizon, something, something bigger. And after all, the Buddha said, the five senses have something bigger 
as their basis, as their foundation, which is the mind. In turn, the mind has something bigger as its basis, which is awareness. And in turn, awareness has something bigger as its basis, which is liberation. From, from small to bigger and bigger until it's, it's boundless. So, um, whenever we taste a glimpse of this, we get more and more convinced about the beauty of the practice and about the good fortune, or good karma, if you prefer, that we all have in being here and in, in being practitioners. And I think we should also enjoy this kind of awareness. Thank you, and uh, let's sit for a while.